Hey, welcome to the podcast of C3 Los Angeles. I'm Jake Sweetman, and together with my wife, Nicole, we lead this church. We're glad you're here, and we pray that wherever you're tuning in from, that you are encouraged and strengthened by this word. Here's today's message. We'll go ahead and open up to 1 Corinthians. We're going to get into the word today. I want to start by reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 1, but let me prepare you, fasten your seatbelts. Because the Apostle Paul says, now regarding the questions you ask in your letter, yes, it is good to abstain from sexual relations. But because there's so much sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman should have her own husband. The husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs and the wife should fulfill her husband's needs. The wife gives authority over her body to her husband, and the husband gives authority over his body to his wife. Do not deprive each other of sexual relations. Amen. Unless you both agree to refrain from sexual intimacy for a limited time so you can give yourselves more completely to prayer. Afterward, you should come together again so that Satan won't be able to tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command, but I wish everyone was single just as I am. Yet each person is a special gift from God one kind or another. Verse eight, so I say to those who aren't married and to widows, it's better to stay unmarried just as I am. But if they can't control themselves, they should go ahead and marry for it is better to marry than to burn with lust. For those who are married, I have a command that comes not from me, but from the Lord. A wife must not leave her husband, but if she does leave him, let her remain single or else be reconciled to him and the husband must not leave his wife. Jump down to verse 17. It says, each of you should continue to live in whatever situation the Lord has placed you and remain as you were when God first called you. This is my rule for all the churches. (laughs) Thank you, Pastor Jake, for this passage. Today, I wanna kind of bring a sermon in the installment and it's gonna be more teaching today and I believe that what we need more today than ever is a lot of scripture. So I wanna prepare your hearts for the word of God to come thick and fast right into your notebook today. But I wanted to entitle this particular sermon, Christian Dating and Church Rules or Church Rules and Christian Dating. Is anybody wanting to leave just yet or you wanna stick around and hope this gets a little bit better? When it comes to the idea of, or the subject of relationships, or better still, when approaching a sermon uh, around relationships, I I find myself a little intimidated, I gotta be honest with you. Not because I don't know what to say, but because I don't know where to start. You know, the subject is so big and so vast. Where do you even begin? What do you tackle first? I feel like Paul just gives us a a barrage of comments and understanding and wisdom and perspective. He he encapsulates in one passage, singles, married, dating, divorcees. He's got everyone in the mix. And it feels like Paul is just kind of bombarding us with perspectives on, on things around relationships. And traditionally, what we'll find in sermons, church sermons that is on relationships, you'll find that they cover subjects such as communication in marriage. They'll, 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 they'll cover subjects like conflict or, or marriage itself, which is certainly helpful, you know, when you come into the house of God, how are we meant to do this thing? But what about subjects like dating and, and sexual desires? How do we navigate this as believers? It would be so much easier that if a church could just stick away from this stuff and, and concentrate on what the church should concentrate on, like, 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 like authority and, 
and, and power and those kinds of things. But, but, but should the church talk into relationships? Sometimes I think people have a, a perspective that the church's perspective on relationships is antiquated. So what relevance could an, uh, an ancient document bring to modern relationships? And I think that we could all agree that it's a sensitive subject, especially in church, because dating is so complicated. Like dating's complicated. If you didn't realize that, if, if dating wasn't complicated, we would not have dating apps. We wouldn't have apps that find your match because you, are, you can't do it yourself. <laughs> like if you could do it, we wouldn't have technology that would help us. Gone are the day where you just see somebody, you ask them out and you say, let's date, let's get married. But that is what makes, I think, dating so complicated because there are stages within dating. There are things within dating that make dating difficult, like previous experiences. I got to bring that into dating. I got to bring my current life stage into dating and add to that the tension of the fact that you're a Christian. I mean, that alone will bring so much anxiety and, and excitement into the idea of dating. And as a pastor, I got to be honest with you, I want to be as helpful as I can. That's my goal today. I came in here, Uncle Adam, I'm 40 now, I'm married, I got three kids, my daughter's at dating age, I better figure this out for me, if not for you. My goal is to be as helpful as I can today, so I'm coming in like an uncle, and I want to use the Word of God as our guide today on how to date as a Christian while having sexual desires and still somehow remain holy. And if you're already married, take notes and use it as a parent, okay? You can use it on your kids today. But in my opinion, what I think makes Christian dating, just to set the scene, so difficult, I think it's the pressure. Because the, this concept is simple enough. You know, you ask someone out, you, you have a conversation, you eat some food, then you've got one of two options that you're presented with. Either we end it here before it begins, or we keep going on towards marriage. That's kind of the two pathways that a date will present. However, each one of those choices presents an obstacle. Because even if you decide that we're going to end it right here and we're just going to go our separate ways, you still have to exist within the same church community and hopefully it's not weird. Hopefully they don't talk about you to all their friends and you know you, you start looking over your shoulder. Or even if you decide to press, proceed forward, it's not only you now that has sexual desires, but you have two people with sexual desires. And when two people have got sexual desires, that's a, that's a concoction for danger. So how are we meant to navigate this Paul, how do we do this and still be holy? Well, Paul seems to give us some pretty clear guidelines here in Scripture. For instance, in this passage in 1 Corinthians, we find instructions for sexual intimacy in marriage, as well as instructions for single folks. So everybody here is included today. And I don't know how helpful or inspiring that passage was that I read to you. I'm guessing not a lot. But maybe on one level, it's kind of complimentary that Paul thinks it's possible. These dating ideals that he's presenting, it's, it's possible for us. But at the same time, I find the expectation can be disappointing. And so when considering this idea that Paul presents around dating and singleness and marriage and abstaining and all these things that he just poured upon us, uh, I wonder if we consider that an application. What we've probably convinced ourselves is impossible. I wonder if, I wonder if it's just difficult, not just impossible. I mean, I know this because I got married and 
I remember when I started dating my wife, I wanted to date her. She was in Bible college. And uh, she came to my church. So I grew up in the church. It was my church. She came into my, my world. I remember the first Sunday I saw her, I was like, thank Jesus. I don't, know if I, was, I don't know if I was worshiping the creator or the creation that day. I'll be honest with you. It was a fine line between just marveling at your handiwork, Lord. You know, and, and, and I remember she signed up, brand new Christian, brand new believer. She signed up for Bible college. And uh, I was excited up until I heard that the dean of the college told every freshman class no dating in their first year, especially one of the smoking boys. I'm like, you gonna do me like that? Like, I mean, come on. And he knew my reputation. He knew what the smoking boys were all about. And so he was doing his due diligence as the dean of the college to protect all the ladies. However, I knew it wasn't impossible. I knew it was gonna be difficult, but I knew it wasn't gonna be impossible. And I got to tell you, I had so much joy on my face the day I got married and the dean of the college was standing at my wedding. But I wonder about that all the time. I wonder if we confuse what's difficult with what's definite. Like surely, surely in our modern culture, like not having sex outside of marriage is merely an antiquated idea and something that's impossible within our society. Like surely, but surely being faithful to one person is like a romantic notion, something made for movies, but unrealistic in our progressive era. And surely the idea of being holy the way Jesus is holy, as the Bible instructs, well, while inspiring, I wonder, is it, is, it, is it possible amidst the pressures and the temptations in the world that we live in? I mean, really, what are the, what are the church rules around this? What are the regulations, the requirements, the, the commands, especially in the context of relationships? Well, in this passage, Paul presents a section of Scripture that is in a way a, a Christian leader's response to questions within the church at that time. I, I like that Pastor Jake mentioned before. He, he mentioned that the first four chapters of 1 Corinthians are just Paul trying to help people with wisdom. Like, like in this life, there is some wise people who can give you some godly wisdom, so seek it out. Don't just trust your own wisdom. Don't just trust your own ideals. Don't, don't just go by your first thought. I often tell people, go with your third thought. You know what I mean? Because you kind of scale it back a little bit and then you get to some level of reason. But Paul is trying in his leadership as a church leader to give a direction and a response to a question that came from the church. For instance, he emphasized this in verse one. He says, now regarding the questions you ask in your letter. And this is an important context to understand because Paul is not just deciding one day to, some, to bring some religious rules around Christian dating because he thought, this is getting out of hand. I better coach you guys. No, no, he's responding to their questions. Like, how do we do this? Like, how do we do this? This is chaotic. I'm getting hung up. I'm getting all kinds of stuff messed up in my life. Apostle, please help us with some wisdom and some godly guidance. And so Paul comes with this idea and he presents to them what he calls a concession, a command, and even in his own word, words, rules for church. And of course, he, had, he adds in there some context in verse 26. He says something that they were facing, some unusual pressure as a community. He says in verse 26, he says, now regarding your question about young women who are not yet married, I do not have a command for the, from the Lord for them, but the Lord in His mercy has given me wisdom that can be trusted, and I'll share it with you. Verse 26, he says, because of the present crisis, I think it's best to remain as you are. 
I mean, how many people hear that because of all we've gone through have a little bit more empathy when the Bible talks about a present crisis? Uh, like Paul's saying, hey, because of the present crisis, and we don't know what the crisis is that Paul was talking about. We don't know if he was facing a pandemic back then. We don't know if it was looming persecution on the church. However, after what we've had to endure as the community, we can certainly appreciate that leading through a crisis is not simple. Like leading through a crisis, leading through a circumstance, leading through a specific season in life, there's not always, you know, I, I don't know if you know this or not, but Pastor Jake has not had a specific passage, a secret passage for pastors on how to lead through a pandemic. Has, 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 I haven't found it either. I didn't get it taught in Bible college. They skipped, I must have skipped that class. I skipped a few, but, but it must have been that one. But, but there was, there's, no specific, there's not always a specific passage for every season. So what you've got Paul saying, man, there's a present crisis going on, but you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you my best wisdom that I can bring as a church leader. And what he does is he begins with what he calls a concession. Or in other words, a, a recommendation based in wisdom. And it's to do with husbands and wives maintaining intimacy. In fact, maybe, maybe I could paraphrase Paul's words for you and modernize it if that would help us understand what this passage is saying because in my opinion, Paul is saying, husband and wives, it's a good, it's a good idea to get physical whenever you can. And don't be selfish or prudish, but make it fun. Husbands, if your wife has needs, be a need meter. And wives, if your husband has needs, I suggest you be the one to meet them. This is literally what Paul is saying to married couples. And if I preach this in my church, all the married couples would be clapping their hands, probably slapping 50s on the stage because that's the kind of sermon they want to sit under. I don't know what's going on in Los Angeles. Acting like you don't have sex in marriage. Acting like you don't enjoy it. Paul has given you some of the greatest permission as a married person to enjoy your spouse, to, to, to literally enjoy each other. This ain't a duty just for multiplication and reproduction, just so you can do your part on, on filling the earth. Paul says, have fun, yo. Do it all the time. And if you have to abstain just for a minute just to pray, then make sure quickly afterwards you come back. Great preaching, man. This is it's great wisdom. I've been married 19 years. Don't know what that means, but just thought I'd throw it out there. He says it's a, con a concession. It's a, it's a concession. It's a concession. Don't take, don't take this as an oppressive command from God, but take it as a personal recommendation from a Christian leader. He makes sure he, he categorizes this. He says, this is my recommendation. This is my recommendation. He's not saying this is God's command. You will go into the bedroom. He's like, I, I just got a really good idea, guys. Really good idea is, is have sex all the time. I, I just really feel like this is wisdom. And Paul isn't even married, but he's like, I, I know how crazy you all are, but it's a good advice. So, so don't take it as oppressive from God. Like now I've got to be a slave in my marriage. No, 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 it's a, it's a, it's a privilege. In other words, see intimacy as permission. See it as privilege, not pressure. Are you still with me? I'm the one preaching, not you. Why are you quiet? This is a, commission, a, a concession, not a command. In fact, he also recommends that single people stay single. <laughs> because honestly, it's easier. 
Literally, he says single life is way easier, but as a concession, he says that if you can't control yourself, it's better to get married than self-combust. This is literally what he puts out there in Scripture. However, while this is a concession, it's not to say that there aren't some clear commands in for Christian relationships. In fact, Paul quickly pivots from his recommendations, and now he pivots to to, to instruction from God. He says this in verse 10, but those who are married, I have a command that comes not from me, but from the Lord. A wife must not leave her husband, but if she does leave him, let her remain single or else be reconciled to him and the husband must not leave his wife. Now, as much as I would love to step over this because it's passages like this that have been uh, produced, I think a lot of hurt within the church and have been used to bring condemnation on those who have been through a divorce, who have experienced a marriage breakdown. And they've done it because they've basically presented it as a direct command from God. See, see, see what the Bible says. If you get divorced, you can't get remarried. So you need to stay single or you need to get back to that husband. You need to go like as if the husband's the shining light in the relationship and the wife is the one who left the man. but And that's how it's often been used detrimentally in people's lives because it's been taken out of context. And this is one of the most dangerous things to do in Scripture is to take a section, an isolated sentence and use it removed from the context or the piece of writing for what Paul is trying to present as a whole. Because not only does Paul here give us a seemingly tough command from God, but also some pretty challenging church rules as well. He says this in verse 17, each of you should continue to live in whatever situation the Lord has placed you and remain as you were when God first called you. This is my, my rule for the churches. Paul's like, yeah, I got some advice. God's got some commands, but I've also got some rules on how we're gonna do this here. And I feel like this is gonna be healthy because there are some things that God wants to produce in you and I gotta protect you for what God wants to do in you. It might be helpful to know that Paul was not the only apostle to give Christian leaders perspective in holy living within relationships. You know, Peter also presents us with some, uh, some of his own instructions as well. Check this out. Turn to 1 Peter with me. I wanna show you this in 1 Peter chapter 1 and uh, verse 13. This is Peter. Peter says, so. Everyone say so. So prepare your minds for action and exercise self-control. Put all your hope in the gracious salvation that will come to you when Jesus Christ is revealed to the world. So, everyone say so. So you must live as God's obedient children. Don't slip back into your old ways of living to satisfy your own desires. You didn't know any better then. But now you must be holy in everything you do just as God who chose you is Holy for scriptures say you must be holy because I am holy. Now, before you actually go ahead and write off this instruction as impossible, allow me to illuminate the consistent theme that both apostles are actually presenting in different passages of scripture. Because essentially, what we find Peter here is he is presenting a contrast between how we are meant to live now that we're in relationship with God and with Jesus as opposed to the way we used to live before we were born again. What they both want to know is that, yeah, yeah, relationships are important with each other. Relationships in dating, relationships in marriage, relationships even with your single. But, but let's emphasize the fact that things change once you step into a new relationship. 
that there is a relationship with God that frames the way we interact. I'm just looking at the people outside as well, just maybe get some eye contact. But maybe I could shoot, where's the camera? Let's look online as well, include you. So comfortable there in your online seat, no one sweating, hot, talking about sex, all that kind of stuff. But, but there is other relationships that frame the way we're meant to interact in our relationships now that we're born again. He says, he says, don't slip back. Don't slip back in your old ways of living to satisfy your own desires. You didn't know any better then. Another way is what, what motivated your life before you became a Christian was your own desires. At the core of human nature, we have inbuilt desires that are expressed in the form of appetite, attraction, and affection. And whether it's a desire for acceptance or approval or a desire for influence or intimacy, it's the very force of desire that drive us in life and direct our decisions. You see, desire is like the fuel to the engine of your being. It produces energy. Desire produces urgency. It's the kind of mechanism that will override practicality and even maturity to obtain a particular desire. It's a force. Desire is so powerful, it will cause you to take risks and do stuff that you would never normally do. Look in Genesis. There's a passage of scripture. We see this, I think it's in Genesis, uh, Genesis like 2.29 or something like that, or 2.29.9 or 22.2. One of the two, there's a story in Genesis where, where, where you've got Jacob and Jacob is essentially mesmerized by, by Rachel. He sees Rachel for the first time. And literally, he's at this art. He's pretty, he's pretty aged. He's pretty aged. He's like somewhere in his 60s and he first sees Rachel. And obviously, there's a lot of pent up, you know, emotions there. And then he sees Rachel. And the Bible says that he is so mesmerized by desire that he walks over and flips over a stone that usually takes 10 men. He does it on his, on his own. He literally flips over a stone. It's in the Bible. You've got to check it out for yourself. You said the Bible's boring. You're boring. He flips over a stone on his own. Afterwards, he runs up to Rachel, kisses her, and then weeps. I mean, so much emotion going on. That's what desire will do. Desire will drive you. Desire will cause you to lose all sensibility, all practicality, all sense of maturity and start doing stupid things that you wouldn't do on the weekday. But because it's the weekend, I will do all kinds of things because desire is driving me. Desire, desire, desire will, desire. Paul, both Paul and Peter knew this. They knew that even as Christians, we're still very much driven by desire. And no point are they preaching against desires. You don't find that in this passage. But ultimately, they're revealing that God designed you to have desires. Are you staying with me? I'm just trying to give us a launching pad to really start preaching this home into your world and trying to make sure that I do the, the biblical context because it's all through the Bible. Desires all through the Psalms. Psalms 37 verse four, it says, delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Even Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, 2, he says, like newborn babies, you must desire or crave pure spiritual milk so you will grow into a full expression of salvation. This is because God uses desire to motivate us and to move us. That, that's, the, that's the mechanism and the function in your life. God's plan is to use desire. He created you with desires. You are a desirable being. God will use your desirableness to have someone else desire. God wants to move people together. God will 
He, he wired that in me. So God uses desire. And the truth be told that without desires, you'd probably do nothing. You probably wouldn't do anything. However, when dating, when dating becomes simply a means of satisfying your desire, that's when desires become destructive. And the overarching theme of 1 Corinthians 7 is actually not so much about dating as much as about desire. That's the theme. That's the context. Now, believe it or not, the apostles do present us with some practical help. <laughs> For example, before Peter charges us to be holy, he says this in verse 13. He says, so, so prepare yourselves, your minds for action and self-control. Now, if this sentence was said by anybody else but Peter, I don't think it would have the emphasis. Because this is Peter, who in the Bible was possibly the least self-controlled person we have as an example. Like, like Peter was reactionary. P Peter, Peter was always, he, he, he is characterized in Scripture as someone who is not the example of holding their tongue and being self-controlled. Peter would just say it. Peter would just, but that was disciple Peter. This is Apostle Peter. This is Peter who has actually learned some things in life and is now presenting you with an idea on how to actually handle desire. And, and Peter is, after denying Jesus, we see having a powerful encounter with grace. This is what shifted Peter. What shifted Peter from being that brash, lack of self-control guy, that disciple, after denying Jesus, has a moment of reconciliation with Jesus, where Jesus shows incredible grace to Peter, and it shifted him. It changed him. Something in Peter became different. The way he looked at the world, the way he saw the world. And while there's practical help in this encouragement to exercise self-control from Peter, Peter wants us to know that the real power to being holy comes from this thing called grace. Can I preach now? I said the framework. I did a good job too, Pastor Jake. Now can I preach? Now can I preach at you? I haven't got long left, but I got some words I wanna preach right into your world. I had to make sure I got the context out. I did a theological job. I did a good pastor's work right there. Now I'm ready to preach. Because if you have any hope of being holy, it can't be just in your measure. It can't be as scripture. It can't be just your desire to be holy. There is this thing called the grace of God that is the mechanism or the ability, the grace from heaven that will position us in a place to be holy. And I wanna prove how this is gonna happen because Peter... He begins, you'll find, with the word so. So prepare yourself. Now, so does something. It connects two thoughts together. It reaches back, in fact, to the previous section of writing, illuminating it as the precursor to what he's now instructing. Because Peter begins his letter by unpacking the mystery of grace. He says this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Let me give you the context. I told you I'm going to give you a lot of scripture today. This ain't my preaching. This is the word of Jesus Christ. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is by His great mercy that we have been born again because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Now we live with great expectation and we have a priceless inheritance. He's talking about what's to come. An inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, pure, undefiled, beyond reach of change and decay. And through your faith, God is protecting you by His power until you receive this salvation, which is ready to be revealed in the last day for all to see. Jump down to verse 10. This salvation was something even the prophets wanted to know more about when they prophesied about this gracious salvation prepared 
for you. They wondered what time or situation the Spirit of Christ uh, within them was talking about when they told them in advance about Christ's suffering and the, His great glory after. They were told that their message was not for themselves, but for you. And now this good news has been announced to you for those who, uh, to you by, uh, by those who have preached in the power of the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. It is also wonderful that even the angels are eagerly watching these things happen. In other words, he's like, the angels are literally on the edge of heaven and they're looking down at earth and just like in awe, mesmerized. Like, do you see that? You see how much they messed up? And yet, it's grace. God still accepts them. Like they're literally on the edge of heaven, just mesmerized. It's like watching Yellowstone or something. They're just glued to the television of life, glued watching this grace play out that was not for them, it was for you and I. Peter is unpacking that salvation that we experience now that will be completed in the future was prophesied in the past. This is gonna be hard to get your head around. He's, He's trying to connect a whole lot of thoughts here that the salvation you are in right now is also something that was for a future that we're still yet to receive, even though we're in it now, it's something we're still yet to receive. It was actually prophesied way in the past. That the people in the past were prophesying prophesying about a time that they couldn't experience, but on the other side of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ that we would be able to step into right now, even before we experience it in eternity. That it's not just something we wait for and live for and hope for, but we experience here on earth. I'm glad the front row is getting this because I'm hoping that this is gonna hit the back row soon. It's a concept and a notion so profound and so magnificent that even as it was revealed to the prophets as they spoke it, they wondered who could be such blessed recipients? Who, in what day and age will people be able to not have to work for their sins, but can walk in grace and forgiveness? Because that's not what their reality was. Their reality wasn't experiencing grace. It was condemnation and and law, and had to pay back, had to work hard, had to get yourself out of the mess that you got yourself in. And they wondered what kind of future time this salvation would play out in. Likewise, the angels were watching, and it's, it's on this understanding that Peter then writes, so. It's on that basis that Peter writes, so. Now, now I also need to add this, that a major misappropriation of grace when it comes to relationships would to apply the sentence, well, I'm saved by grace, as an excuse to sin. Can I just say that? This is, a, this, is, this is detrimental to your understanding of grace. That, well, psh, the angels are watching and we don't got to do anything and grace is that good. Well, I just get to sin. I just get to do whatever I want knowing that God's grace extends toward me. That would water down grace to a mere guilt offering. In fact, more accurately, it's because of God's great mercy that we don't get what we deserve. Grace, more correctly, isn't so much about escaping what we do deserve. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. You see, mercy covers what we have done. Grace reveals who we're called to become. That would go off in my church. I'm telling you, that would just hit. Mercy 
Mercy covers what we've done. It's by the mercy of God we didn't get what we deserved. It's by the merciful nature of God that we were condemned, but because of His mercy, we didn't get what we would deserve. Grace talks about who He's creating you to be. Grace is taking you and shaping you and still using you, even though you don't deserve to be used. He is shaping you and molding you and redeeming you, and He is fashioning you. I'm talking to anybody who's been through some marriage breakdown and you've wondered if God's still got something for me. By His grace, He has something for for you. By His mercy, He got you out of a negative situation. But by His grace, He's shaping you and still promoting you and positioning you to be more effective in the future than you were in the past. It's by His grace. It's by His grace. And if you miss the context of grace, when you're reading these regulations and rules, you'll miss the whole paradigm of what Paul and Peter and many other apostles are trying to present to the church. It's this understanding of grace. So in other words, What Peter is doing is he's helping us understand that this gracious salvation that that is ours in Christ Jesus isn't a guilt offering. It's actually a guidepost. This grace is not like a guilt offering, like, 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 oh, I'm on grace of God. (laughs) Whew, got out of that one, thank goodness for his grace. It's not a guilt offering, that was mercy. Grace Grace is a guidepost. Grace is a guidepost. If you're a note taker, I would write that down. That's going to be very helpful tomorrow when you're trying to recalibrate the sermon and apply it into your life when guilt and shame are trying to come on you because the weekend was a little bit heavy and the enemy's trying to come at you. That's the moment where you go, oh, grace is not a guilt. It's a guidepost. It's a guidepost. It's a guidepost. It's a guidepost for life. It's a guidepost that directs. It's a marker of identity. It's a revealer of direction. Theologically put, the indicative becomes the basis of the imperative, meaning what God has done for us is the premise of how we live our life forward. What God has done for us becomes the premise of how we live our life forward. This is why your desires aren't the problem. See, what's preventing you from being holy, like Jesus is holy, it's not your desires. Peter says it's your direction. Maybe I'll bring it back from the cerebralness for a moment. And it's all gonna come together in a moment because, because so often we live in regret. What we've done, where we've been, which prevents us from our direction moving forward. And Paul and Peter and the very spirit of Jesus is trying to reveal to you it's not what you have done that is the problem. It's not your desires, it's, it's, it's your direction. You see, Your desires might be the driving force behind your decisions. God actually designed it that way. But while your desires drive you, it's His grace that will guide you. It's His grace that will will guide you. Without the guidepost of grace, I will achieve my desires the easiest way possible and settle for far less than God's best for my life. See, without the grace of God, I will take those desires that are firing within me the desires that are driving me like horsepower, and I will achieve them the quickest, cheapest, and easiest way possible. But by doing that, I'm gonna fall far short of God's best for my life. It's not the desires that's the problem, it's the direction that's the problem. So so God is not like just, 
if, if we get stuck in this Christian religious rhetoric where we're trying to diffuse our desires, trying to put blinders on, put ourselves in a monastery somewhere and not have any temptations in life, that way then I can subdue my desires and not have desires. You're actually going against the wiring and the nature of God that He put inside of you to actually use those desires to drive you towards His very best for your life. But if you don't use grace as your guidepost, you'll settle for far less than God's best. You'll settle for the quickest and the easiest. And this is what keeps us slipping back into a cycle uh, of seeking to satisfy our own desires. But Peter says instead, be holy. So simply, I love that. Just be holy. Look at your neighbor. Look at your neighbor. Find your favorite one. Say, be holy. Like do it without a condemnational tone. Just be, say, be holy. Be holy. How simple is that? I mean, why are we even coming here each week getting great sermons and insight from the Bible when the simple instruction of be holy is what we're meant to do, just be holy? Well, I love the simplicity of the sentence, but it's so complex in understanding. It seems impossible. And the reason it seems impossible is because we often view being holy as sinless perfection. That's, that's, that's tough. Like if you want me to be holy... And, and, and you think it's possible, and my, you don't know me, Paul. You don't know me, Peter. Sinless perfection, I'm gonna be holy for a hot five minutes, and then you know what's gonna happen? How, how, how is that even possible? It seems too simple. It seems, seems way too simple to be sinless. Well, that was the case, and God's command for us to, to be holy like he is holy, would be impossible. However, holy does not mean sinless. You ready to write something down? Holy means set apart. Set apart unto the Lord. To be identified with Christ. That doesn't mean I don't got desires. That doesn't mean they don't drive you. It simply means that my decisions aren't directed by what I can get. My life is guided by who I can become. My, my desires aren't driven by what I can get, but the same desires and the drive that you have wired within you that drive you to achieve and obtain things are the same desires and mechanism that God has wired within you to drive you to becoming the person He has called you to be, to get or to become. God's like, this, this is in the same chassis. It's in the same field. It's in the same person, the same body. Uh, I'm trying, I'm, can I come down off the stage? Is that allowed in this church? Because I know we've got social distancing, but you're talking like this is some Presbyterian church. This is a Pentecostal church. <laughs> we believe in the power of the Holy Spirit to redeem you and set you free and sanctify you. Sorry, I better get back on the stage for the cameras and the people outside. But the truth is, I, I'm wondering what will resonate in your life because if you're anything like me, and maybe I'm in the holiest of holies of churches because in my church, this stuff resonates because we all got jacked up desires up in the Bay Area. <laughs> Messed up, jacked up people who are confused about how to live their life when they put it in reflection of holiness and how do we diffuse desires as a good Christian person? I'm coming to church. I'm trying real hard. But yeah, you're trying in the wrong way because you're trying to squash down the desire and not want things and not want her and not want to date that person and be good just like Paul, single. Yeah, I'd love to do that. 
can't switch off the desires. Paul says, don't switch them off, direct them. Direct them. Instead of, instead of seeing for what you can get, that fix and that fulfillment, direct them to drive you to who you could become. Instead of saying, I need some intimacy, what kind of intimacy could I give? What could I be as a husband? Not just get my fix, but imagine, imagine if I used this desire and it drove a marriage and it drove me towards my wife and it pursued her for the rest of my days. Imagine how I could, imagine how I could direct these desires. It's because I'm guided by grace. I'm guided, I'm guided by grace. I'm guided by the grace of God. That my, my desires drive, but grace guides because grace is revealing who I'm called to be. I'm not stuck in what I once was. I'm not stuck in this jacked up, sexually driven person who's wrecked lives and wrecked my own and all that. That past has been dealt with by the mercy of God. But when that, when that past was dealt with by the mercy of God, by His grace, He began to reveal the person He's making me to be. So I can take that person that I see in the Scripture, that God calls me victorious, that God calls me mighty. He calls me a masterpiece. And because of His redemptive power, I use that as the guide rail to direct my desires, to go after something deeper than something so shallow and fleeting and destructive in my life, to be set apart, to be set apart, guided. It's not easy. Don't, don't think it's easy, but it's not impossible. In fact, let me close with this. First Peter chapter 4, verse 1 says, So then, since Christ suffered physical pain, you must arm yourselves with the same attitude He had and be ready to suffer too. The, the apostles are savage, okay? They ain't gonna play nice. They ain't trying to coax you in and calm you down and they're just gonna drop it like it's hot. They're gonna be like, you know what? Jesus suffered pain, get ready for that. This ain't gonna be easy, this life. If you thought just switching in your mindset, my desires are gonna now be towards the person that God has called me to be and I'm not gonna desire Doritos at midnight on Friday night, you, you, it's not going to be easy. It's not going to be easy. But be willing to suffer too. For if you've suffered physically for Christ, you have finished with sin. And you won't spend the rest of your lives chasing your own desires, but you'll be anxious to do the will of God. In other words, for Jesus to achieve His purpose, He had to face real opposition, not just spiritual opposition, but physical ones, deny the flesh kind of opposition and disciplines, which is often the key to either staying stuck or going somewhere. So deny the flesh, to, to, to prioritize the calling of Christ on your life, to literally recognize that you have a high calling in Christ. You have a high calling in Christ. That's what be holy is. When I told you, look at your neighbor and say, be holy, we can change it. You have a high calling in Christ. You have a, you know what you need to do? You need to look in the mirror every single day and say, you have a high calling in Christ Jesus. Why would I negotiate my high calling for a surface level moment? What? You know when, you know, you know when Jesus came, when the devil came at Jesus out in the wilderness and he said, turn this stone into a bread? Jesus went to him with scripture, man, should not live by bread alone. In other words, he's saying, I've got a high calling. Why would I? Why would I give up a high calling for something so simple? But we give up things for bread all the time. There's bread. Probably gluten bread. 
back you up. But he's you've got a high calling. But the high calling of Christ that he has given you by his grace. You don't get what you deserve. You get a brand new start. You get a fresh start at this relationship thing. That's what grace does. It's not easy. But since grace is my guide and since I'm becoming someone according to that grace that is on my life, I need to have an attitude like Jesus where where I begin to refuse to stay stuck simply chasing my own desires. This 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 is when my relationship actually graduates from merely satisfying desires to being the vehicle through which God's purpose is delivered into my life. Did you know that? Like, like if you were chasing your own desires, you will actually use a relationship to fulfill your desires. But, God, but when you actually submit it to the grace of Jesus Christ on your life, God will use your relationships to begin to deliver the high calling that He has for you all along. You begin to step into a partnership. You'll begin to step into a relationship that is designed and architected by God. And it's in that place you begin to realize, not only are my desires fulfilled, but I begin, to do, I begin to fulfill desires. It's the grace of God to be a need meter. This is the context of what Paul is writing here in this passage. He's trying to illuminate, don't live by your fleshly desires and your temporal needs. I'm trying to call you higher, church. You're asking me questions about how do we do this dating thing. Paul's like, I'm trying to give you an elevated perspective of the calling of Christ on your life. See, see I learned this in youth ministry. I was a youth pastor for 10 years before I had gray hair. And... I loved it, but for the first couple of years, I went insane trying to preach purity to youth. We had purity bands. Dumbest thing ever. And it was amazing because the moment you start preaching about purity, everyone focuses on that and everyone starts falling all over the place around that thing. I'm like, there's gotta be a better way. And what I discovered is if instead of preaching purity, what if I preach purpose? What if I started to elevate their purpose, their high calling in Christ, and I gave them a bigger vision for their life? Purity isn't even a question that I'm going to negotiate because I know who I am in Christ. I know it's the grace of God on my life that drives me, that ensures I'm going to fulfill. I'm set apart. I'm set apart. Not sinless. Ain't sinless. There's only one who is sinless, that's Jesus. But I can be set apart unto Him. I can recognize that He has put a calling on my life. I can recognize that He has redeemed my past and what is ahead of me by His grace is better than what's behind. I need you to stand to your feet, church, because I have to finish, but I wanna make sure I do a moment of ministry for anybody who has felt in this area of life condemned or if you have felt somewhat marginalized from the community of believers or you have somehow felt less than or not qualified to or to be used by God by somehow something in some way that you slipped up in the past or some action or marriage breakdown or divorce or whatever the area that you've been through as if that allows you just to be an attender and not a builder of the house of God I feel that today what God is wanting to redeem in your life is a perspective of the grace that He put on your life, that He is inviting you to be set apart again. He is inviting you to use those desires to fulfill the great mandate and calling that He has put on your life. You've been listening to the C3 Los Angeles podcast. If you found today's message helpful, we encourage you to share it with a friend and consider rating it. 
If you'd like more information about our church or details on how to get connected to a neighborhood group, head to c3losangeles.com. We love you. Thanks for tuning in with us.